Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick Series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Mario Falsetto. Mr. Falsetto is the author of Perspectives on Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick, a narrative and stylistic analysis. They're always kind of controversial when they get released. Um, uh, you know, Barry Lyndon was kind of had a mixed reception, and and Clockwork Orange had a certain amount of controversy and things like that. But over the years, they you know uh, people realize you know these things are really serious works. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to be here for a long time. People will be talking about them for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they really hold up really well. But I think the 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 thing about mis- mysteriousness of some of the films. You know the ambiguities of some of the films. I think, you know, Kubrick makes certain films which I think are more clear-cut. You know, in terms of what they mean. You know, something like Doctor Strange over Clockwork Orange. I, mean, I think mm-hmm. I think those are, pr- are pretty clear. But then he makes these other things which are more mysterious objects. You know, like Space Odyssey or 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 The Shining or uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which I I I think of a bit differently and. And those films, I think you can go back to over and over and over again, you know, because you never really do unlock them. Right. You know, they, they, they're meant to be sort of thought about and played with, and you know, they're very tantalizing. And I, I think he, you know, he, he obviously deliberately creates uh, you know, complex works that, you know, are, are uh, you know, part of the mystery is, is, is you know built into it, built built into them. You know, they're not meant to be sort of, oh, well, I understand what that's about, and then kind of go on. I mean, that's yeah. not what they're about, you know. They're they're much more mysterious, and they're much more complex than all that. Yeah. Now, I, I, you... I kind of do like those, I mean, a lot. I mean, I, 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 you know, I like all of his work, but, you know, some, I think, more than others. Um, and I can keep going back to, to things like... Uh, well, I mean, Barry Lyndon, I think, for me, is one of his really great achievements. You know, I just mm-hmm. think it's such an amazing film, such a compelling work, you know, so rich. Um, it's got so many things that it's trying to do and so many things that it's, you know, on its mind. And, um, that, for, that, for me, is really a great film. You know, which is not to say that I, I don't think, uh, you know, The Shining is a great film or... Full Metal Jacket is a great film. I think I think they're all great, but um, you know, there's certain films that I think uh, I pref- you know I like to spend time with. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm interested in a, a few de- devices that he uses, but mm-hmm. f- as you describe in your book. But first of all, the, the the conception of your book, because there have been many studies on Mr. Kubrick's works. Where did where did that uh, germinate from? Well, I think when I was thinking about Kubrick, uh, you know, quite a while ago, there you know there were there were a lot of studies about Kubrick um, that were fairly thematic. You know, I mean. You know, plot-driven uh, or or sort of technical. Um, um, but I I looked around and I said, well, you know, th- this guy spends years on each film, and everything is so precise. He mm-hmm. spends years um, 
thinking about, you know, he spends years thinking about these films and conceptualizing them and then preparing them um, and shooting them so precisely and then, you know, putting them together. And these people sort of just write these write this stuff as if they've kind of unlocked it, um, you know, after looking at the film once or something or twice. I mean, so that didn't it didn't make sense to me. So I I, I thought, well, you know, what we really needed was a kind of formal analysis of of the work, um, how they were actually working as films, how they were organized as films, how their narratives were working, um, how shots were working with other shots. I mean. It just seemed like that was what was missing when I was um, working on this, uh, you know, a while ago. It's been a while mm-hmm. since the first edition. And so, you know, back in the 80s and uh, uh, early 90s when I was actually conceiving of the book and, and doing it. Um, so it just seemed like that was the gap I wanted to fill. You know, the, the, you know, an artist spends years on a, on a, on a, on a work of art, and it, you can't dismiss it, uh, you know, like like so many film reviewers seem to want to do when they look at a film and they say, oh, well, I like it, or I don't like it, uh, you know, this is what it's about. I mean, it just it seemed, it seemed crazy to me. Um, so, I mean, with somebody like, like Kubrick, uh, I guess I wanted to give those films the attention that um, I thought he was putting into them, into making them, you know, in my own little way, you know, my own yes. sort of modest way. Uh, but that, that's what was missing, I think, in Kubrick's scholarship, uh, for a while, you know, really, really taking the films apart and seeing how they were kind of working um, and how they were organized and what they, you know, what they could possibly mean. I mean, I speculate a lot, I think, in my in my own work about the possibilities of things, you know, and and that's what they are. They're kind of possible meanings, you know. There are other ways to to think about those films. Uh, and, you know, my my work is just a you know a small contribution to to things, but. I think it's a it's a real contribution, you know. I do too. I do too. And, and for me, for me personally, um, when I first started watching Kubrick films so many years ago, um, they they didn't they didn't reach me on an emotional level as deeply as they do now when I watch them. Mm-hmm. I felt a kind of distance from them, and that's a common. Uh, a, a, a common criticism about his work mm-hmm. am, among some people, um, but also you have to—you're not programmed uh, like so many movies uh, today. How you should feel? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, you're not—he's not afraid of ambiguity, mm-hmm. um, and, and and that is something you explore a lot in your book too. How he kind of embraces. Uh, the duality of of man and the duality of themes and it, it transfers into his technical aspects of his filmmaking mm-hmm. too. Um, well, you know, the, the tel- you know the, those those films are are, are working uh, on so, on so many levels mm-hmm. uh, of of, um, of of organization and meaning. Uh, they 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 are. Um, you do have to have a certain amount of distance, I think, to think about them critically. Um, I mean, he is an intellectual. Uh, but at the same time, he he's a he's an artist who who really believes in the power, uh, the emotional power of cinema. You know, I mean, everything has to be working in a Kubrick film. Uh, you know, so the, so they're intellectual, but they're also emotional and 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 and, and powerful powerful things. Um, so you know that 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 complexity you know can feel elusive to people. Um, you know, the first time you look at something, you can mm-hmm. just say, oh, well, these are technically great, but 
you know, what's he saying that's so weird, you know, so interesting or so different than other people, you know, but but uh, they, they allow them, those films are meant to be looked at um, a lot, you know, they, they, and, they give, and they give you pleasure um, over and over again. It's like, no matter how many times you've seen something like, uh, you know, uh, The Shining or, or Dr. Strangelove, you know, if you turn it on, it just, it just sucks you right in because because yeah. it's so good, you know. They're yeah. so, you know, you can't help you can't help but watch those things, you know. Again, even though you've seen them dozens of times, mm-hmm. you know, they're yes. total experiences, you know. Yeah, I, I want to talk about a few of these concepts. One is his work in uh, in genre and and the mm-hmm. the typical genre form. Um, so he uses very kind of he starts on a very conventional kind of plane, say the heist movie, the heist movie mm-hmm. with the killing, and he he structures it in a very unconventional fashion. Uh, could right. you expand upon that, especially in reference to the killing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think whatever genre he's working in, whether it's the horror film with The Shining, or whether it's the heist film, or uh, mm-hmm. the historical uh, epic. With Barry Lyndon, or the war war film with Full uh, Metal Jacket, or whatever. I mean, I think you know he knows that there are certain conventions. He understands um, the conventions of things. Uh, he plays with the conventions of those things. Um, I mean, the, you know, The Shining was written with a Gothic uh, literature expert from California. He's a professor, I think. So you know, mm-hmm. he knew what what certain conventions were for the Gothic. And, and then they could play around with them. And the same thing with the, the heist film. I mean, I think he, he understood um, there are certain things that we associate with uh, with that kind of genre. You know, we we want to see the crime uh, prepared. We want to be with, follow the the uh, the criminal. We want to be be with them as they pull off the heist. You know, and uh, and there are some great great films in that genre. You know, or some wonderful films. Uh, Rafifi or uh, Melville's Stade uh, Rouge or something like that. I mean, there's some wonderful films in that genre. So I think when he when he approaches something, I think he thinks, well, yeah, I have to give sort of people uh, who are familiar with the genre. I can't let them down. I mean, they have to understand that you know there are you know that I, I I'm aware of things, but at the same time, I mean, he never does anything simply. I think he he's also speaking to. In a sense, he's speaking to the ages, you know. It's like, well, I have to make something that will be around 50 years from now or 100 years from now. I, I have to make something that that pushes uh, the boundaries of things, that, that, that will, you know, change the genre in some way or that will be seen to be a, a, an original work of art, you know. So mm-hmm. something like The Killing, you know, really holds up today. Um, you know, even though it's, you know, it's a compact little film and only what his third feature um, really holds up, and partly because of its, you know, sort of complex time structure. You know, it's, it's nonlinear time structure. He's he's, he's giving us uh, a, a very interesting uh, way to to get into that film and to and to be, be with that film. So, so that's I mean that's one of the things that's interesting about it. I mean there are other things, I guess, as well. But you know. It, you know, artists always un- understand that there are certain um, conventions with any genre that they're working in. But you know, they don't want to just give do the same thing that's been done over and over again. I mean, they don't want to do the same thing that other people have done. You know, so so 
you have to be, I mean, Kubrick is an original artist, even though he's working in familiar, sometimes familiar territory. Mm-hmm. He has a huge imagination, you know, and huge sort of abilities, you know, conceptual abilities, technical abilities. I mean, he has all those, he had all those things. So it was, it's, I think it's natural that anything he would approach, I mean, even at that young age, you know, in his late 20s, um, he would, he would, he would be thinking about ways that he could approach the material to make it, you know, more original, more vibrant, um, and something that will la- would last a long time, you know. Yeah. Also, with with uh, you, you you discuss a lot his use of voiceover, mm-hmm. which is another kind of narrative convention, but he uses it in a very unique way, with mm-hmm. the, the killing and Lolita and Clockwork and Linden and. Uh, how does how does uh, his use of voiceover distinguish his work? Well, um, I mean, those are big questions. I, I you know, I think, <laughs> I think you know, I you, I spent years thinking about those questions. Um, you know, he, he's influenced by literature. He's very aware of literature, and he's very very aware of how um, uh, literature works with point of view and with uh, you know first person and third person points of view and. Uh, and he, you know he understands that film is a narrative medium, uh, you know as well as other things. But it's, it's a narrative medium, and that he's working in. Um, uh, uh, you know, even even when uh, the film is, um, you know, uh, primarily almost a non-narrative film like Space Odyssey, where, where the story isn't all that important, mm-hmm. um, and still feel, you know, he, so he understands that uh, things like voiceover. Are, are are a tool, you know, that can be explored and used by um, by the storyteller. Um, how do you present your material? You know, is, are you going to have a narrator? Or are you not going to have a narrator? Will it be first person? Will it be third person? Will it be reliable? Will it not be reliable? I mean, you know, the voiceover and the killing presents material in a very sort of objective way, um, like a documentary, but then occasionally kind of messes up and maybe steers us a bit wrong and makes us question our understanding of of that kind of uh you know uh, uh, approach to to truthfulness that we kind of assume documentaries are all about and so it seems like Kubrick is playing with with the idea of uh, an objective or third person narrator in that film in the same ways I think that he does with first person narrator uh in something like a clockwork orange um mm-hmm. Alex is kind of kind of narrating his own story, but sort of not really. You know, I mean, I mean, he's there on the in the voiceover, and he, and and he kind of creates this relationship with the viewer. But the dramatic body of the film has has Alex in it too, and he's kind of a different Alex. So, so it's the I think you know he sees it as a narrative, um, you know, device of, or or tool um, to be explored. Like like a lot of other things, because um, point of view is very important in cinema. You know, are you getting something from a character's point of view, or is it some kind of sort of in, you know third person objective narration? Um, uh, like does the film have sort of its own point of view? But uh, it makes things more interesting. You know, um, it, it's very interesting uh, in Lolita with the first person uh, point of view of Humbert Humbert. It's me uh, again. Again, he toys with that. Uh, he plays with that. Part of the playfulness of of uh, of sometimes these narrations 
um, is, is important. You know, these are work; these are films that are meant to be enjoyed and played with, and um, you know, we, we're testing our understanding of things against uh, certain characters, or you know, we're playing with the film back and forth in our minds as we kind of think about it and try to understand it uh, and experience it uh, all at the same time. You know, when, how you know everybody approaches films differently, and everybody brings different things to the experience. Um, you know, you might have a greater understanding of film history than somebody else, or you might have a greater understanding of, you know, uh, literature than somebody else, or whatever. So you have different expectations, you know, of films, and you play with them differently. Um, so he's got to try to make films that work for everybody, you know. Yeah. Uh, which is a which is a a difficult task, you know. You've got your intellectual audience, and you've got your mass audience that just wants to, you know, get a great experience out of their two hours, you know, um, in that movie theater. And so somehow he's got to he's got he's got to make it work for everybody. And 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 that's you know that's the the in some ways it's almost a dilemma for Kubrick. You know, it's it was a, a, almost an impossible kind of thing uh, to be this great popular artist. And at the same time, to create challenging intellectual, uh, complex works of art that would hold up and stand up to the best cinema in the world. You know, the best cinema being made by anybody. Yeah, uh, and you know, and you you do touch about uh, on this in your book. And he really was one of the most commercial art film makers mm-hmm. that that we've seen. And I I, I look at. The Shining, that's a, a prime example of a movie that's wildly popular uh, in the, the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And yet, it, it uh, you can go back and, 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 and you can analyze and analyze, and there's much study on The Shining. There's so much there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that well, was a yeah, very I mean, unique... Yeah. I'm sorry, you know, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, just, I just think that this is a, a part of the... The, the dilemma that a lot of sort of really great directors face, um, you know, the Scorseses and Coppola's, and I mean, you've, you've spoken to Coppola and and different people who have who have great ambition, you know, and who and who still want to be, who still are are artists. They're not just um, studio hacks, you know. They, yeah. They, they want to make something that is is worthwhile and and uh, has meaning uh, in the world, and uh, but they also understand that. It's an industry, and they're they're spending millions of dollars of other people's money, <laughs> and there has to be a return on that on that on that investment. And you know, Scorsese has sort of found a way to do it now. You know, his films have gotten a, a bit more commercial. You know, mm-hmm. the last two decades, I would say, uh, maybe maybe starting with uh, Goodfellas and Cape Fear and stuff. And but now, you know, I mean, his films make more money than they ever made, um, even though you know. There's no, you know, his films aren't any better. Um, you know, Shutter Island is no better than Raging Bull or uh, or Taxi Driver. Um, but you know, he he understands the the nature of the industry. Kubrick, I think, was was very aware of the nature of, of, of the business. You know, and I, I, in his place in the business, and somehow he he managed to create uh, this such a great privileged place, you know, where he could do whatever he wanted. And yeah. Somehow all of his films um, were, uh, made back their money and more. Um, but it, it is it is 
I think um, it's not something that is easy to to solve for people. You know, I mean, every director kind of struggles with the commercial art problem uh, in film, and sometimes they, you know, their films don't make money, and sometimes they do. But I think with Kubrick, he was very savvy businessman. You know, he understood. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you've done research on him, and he would, you know, he'd he'd he'd, he'd pour over grosses and things for movie theaters around the world, and he would. He'd measure the ads in the, new, yeah. in the newspaper. I mean, talk about obsessive, you know. Yeah. Did, did you see that uh, program on uh, British television, Kubrick's boxes? Yes. Oh. Yeah. I mean, you know, he designed his own storage boxes. I mean, you know, to hold all of his, his you know, things. I mean, just. Uh, and he kept everything, right? He kept every every single thing that he ever did. Very, very meticulous and methodical, uh, and you could see that in his work, obviously. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, very yeah. precise work, really, really um, uh, ambitious work. You know, very ambitious work, very precise. But but, but as you say, you know, they're they're very commercial. They're they're commercially uh, uh, pretty 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 astute. And yet, at the same time, they're they're works of art. You know, they're they're really, yeah. You know, so yeah, that's, that's a, a th- delicate balance. You know, that is a delicate balance, and and and, and to to cater to the the needs of the commercial audience without sacrificing your own personal obsessions and your vision. Mm-hmm. It, it, also, with the narrative, you talk about the balance in his narrative, and I, I recall, I think I saw an interview with. Uh, um, I don't know if it was Ian Watson or Brian Aldis or s- someone that he was optioning their work or collaborating with them, and he he said about his structure, you need to start with with so many non-submersible units and kind of right. build your story around that. And, and I think he's touching upon what you touched on in your book, where you said his films are, are divided into something like 35 narrative mm-hmm. segments. Could you, could you elucidate that a little bit for me? Well, I find it I found it really interesting. Uh, I mean, I didn't do this for every. I didn't analyze each film this way. It would have taken forever. But uh, you know, when I did do really close analysis, though, I thought I would take a film from the '50s and one a later film and from the mid period. And so I, I looked at three films, all different kinds of films. You know, the shine. It was um, Clockwork Orange and uh, Lolita and The Killing. Different films, very different lengths. And I thought I would, well, let's just break it down narratively. You know, what? how many sequences are actually working? How, how many sequences did he actually create for each film? And what goes on in those sequences? And then I tried to understand his structures, you know. Where did he create climaxes and, and, and things like that? And it was, you know, quite quite illuminating, in the, you know, in the sense, well, he, had a, he has his own sorts of, um, he doesn't follow anybody else's formula, you know. Whether he was making an 80-minute film or a 150-minute film, uh, it didn't make it didn't make any difference. He, he sort of had the same number of of narrative units, you know, of of, of sequences, um, mm. and and things sort of happened uh, always around the same time in his film. Um, uh, very crucial sorts of things would happen. So, so he had his own his own way of working. I mean, I don't know precisely how he worked. I, I was only sort of getting this information by by looking at the film um, in terms of how he would structure and organize his his material. But um, you know, it was it was kind of very illuminating for me just to 
to understand um, that there are that there were these consistencies in, in structure uh, mm -hmm. in his films, and and you don't necessarily have to know this or understand this as you watch the film, but if you if you were thinking about you know maybe why they were why they were working the way they were working or how they were organized or if you wanted to write a script like Kubrick then I think you would have to try to understand um, you know his his structures you know uh, of organization uh, and they're not like the manual you know they're not anything like um, you know how to how to how to write a film uh, the thing you would pick up in the, in the bookstore you know they're not yeah like, the normal three act kind yeah, of structure exactly. yeah i mean i mean you know he's that's the thing about kubrick you know he's he's sort of he's he's a classical director uh to some extent but he's also a modernist artist you know he's very modern his understanding of of art so mm -hmm. he uses some structures you know like the basic three act structure or or elements of it, or out, an outline of it, but but then he'll just kind of make it into his own thing, and and uh, so um, so structure was really important, you know, and just the number of scenes he would he would uh, do for each film. So I found it really illuminating and, and, and interesting, you know, when I, when I broke those films down. Yeah, and there's also he you talk about in the book. I mean, he's interested in duality. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, mm -hmm. but that ex duality of man and, and so forth, but that extends to the structure of his films as well. Yeah. The kind yeah. of reversals and the repetition of certain scenes yeah. and motifs. Yeah, I mean it's all sort of connected, you know. I mean, I, we can only imagine what kind of a brain this guy had, you know. <laughs> I mean, just to, to or, you know, uh, I mean he had his own thoughts and feelings about the world of course you know and uh um you know uh the concept of of duality that he kind of borrows and uh, from Carl Jung or somebody something like that and um and then it, it as you say it kind of extends uh into all kinds of ways of thinking about the films uh, you know our rational irrational sort of duality or I mean, films are very symmetrical, and you can take so many compositions, and you'll see, you know, this this kind of uh, beautiful symmetry, you know, within the frame. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and the, and the concept of, of dualities, I think, extends to, um, you know, just so many elements of of mise en scène for him, or or narrative, or how characters are working, or how they're they're, they're portrayed. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of it must have been instinctive, you know. I mean, I think I don't think. I mean, some of it obviously is planned, but a lot of it is instinctive, you know. This is how he saw the world, you know. This is how he thought thought of the world um, and art, and uh, you know, um, he, he's not someone who just discovered the concept of duality, but but uh, you know, if he explores the dark side in human nature, um, or you know. He he'll do it in his own particular way, you know, whether it's in Full Metal Jacket or Eyes Wide Shot or something. I mean, just these elements of surface and depth and um, what we know and what we don't know, what we see, what we don't see. Um, yeah, I mean, you can you can kind of really sort of spend a long time on his films thinking about these concepts, you know, of uh, of duality. Yeah, but I'm interested in your take on his his view of. 
humanity and his kind of worldview because he's I think he's saying in in Barry Lyndon and you talk about this in your book and perhaps it's there in 2001 too I mean with the, all all the advancements uh, and the, the cultural kind of advancements and the technology that man creates and yet at what cost a, a, yeah. a loss of humanity is is that worth it i mean how do you think he viewed humanity was well, he an optimist you know, late, late 20th century artist and he, he he's very smart and he he looks around the world and he sees the, you know i don't know if he if he's a pessimist exactly but or or completely cynical about the world but he's he has elements of pessimism and elements of cynicism in his work. There's no question about it. You know, I mean, it's 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 not a happy place. You know, um, and human beings, uh, you know, have are capable of the most amazing creations. You know, we have we have uh, eradicated disease. We have created great techn- technological uh, things in the world. I mean. All of that is true, and I. But I think he's, he 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 says, well, we're still sort of stuck in the stuck in the in the world of the apes, you know, when it comes to our emotions or something, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not the only artist to ever say this, and um, there, are, the, you know, the, the, there is a kind of conflict, you know, between our our uh, our sort of primitive, uh, darker selves. And um, you know this idea of progress, of perpetual progress that we have in the world—that things will only get better because human beings are, are capable of so many great things—and um, uh, you know his films are often warnings about that. I think *Space Odyssey* is a warning. Barry Lyndon is a kind of a real investigation of of uh, you know the kind of and *Clockwork Orange*, the real baser sort of instincts of human beings, um, and. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I think with space, with space Odyssey, um, he really meditates on this idea that there's a kind of an exhaustion of the human race. You know, that uh, if we keep going on like this, and this was, you know, this was 40, 45 years ago now. So, I mean, who knows where where we're going to be uh, in a hundred years or two hundred years? But I think he just felt. Um, you know, we're creating all these beautiful objects, but what are they doing to us exactly? How are we losing our? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are they running us? I mean, you know, it's like all this tech, all this technological progress was supposed to relieve mankind from the burdens of work. You know, they're supposed to make life easier for everybody, and, and in fact, it creates more work for everybody and uh, more scrambling around. And um, uh, you know, are we are we slaves? You know, to this kind of technology now, you know, do we have to check our emails fifty times a day? You know, do we, do we have to, you know, all this kind of yeah. stuff? And so, it's like, what, what does happen to our to our humanity? You know, I, I think he was he was really sort of was concerned, you know, about these issues. Um, like, and Hal becomes the, the 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 most, in a way, the most human character <laughs> character in the in the film. I mean, he's yeah. in 2001. Yeah. And, and, how, and, and what does how, you know, how, do, you know, how is how human, you know? He just, he, 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 he shows emotion and he makes mistakes. And this is how he understands human beings. And uh, machines, um, you know, are, 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 are 
you know, not emotional. They're not. So he wants to be human. You know, he he wants to emulate human beings. So you know, mm-hmm. and 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 um, you know, I mean, Kubrick, uh, under, you know, he understands that human beings are very flawed beings. You know, we are very flawed things in the world. Um, there's no such thing as perfection with human beings. You know, it's, uh, it will always be flawed. I mean, but. You know, we have to sort of not lose sight of our humanity. Um, like, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's an important theme of Clockwork Orange as well. You know? What, yeah. what, what do you give up um, to eradicate uh, crime from the streets? I mean, you create these ro- these Clockwork Oranges, you know, these perfect machines, you know, pe- people without emotion, uh, without humanity, and you have safe streets. But then, what do you have? You have this kind of Sterility uh, on the planet. I mean, I mean, he, you know, he was a. I think he was a humanist, you know. Um, but I think he, 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 he was not a romantic in that sense. You know, he's not. He wasn't looking at the world with the rose-colored glasses. You know, I mean, he mm-hmm. saw he saw the worst aspects of human beings. I think you know, um, and maybe this is why some people sort of like have trouble with his work. I don't know, you know. I mean, it, it can see, it can feel pessimistic. I think, you know, it can feel like there's no not much way out. Well, with the um, with the Clockwork Orange, uh, I, I think the, the controversy from that film beyond the the graphic nature of several of the sequences is mm-hmm. the fact that he does not judge Alex. As a matter of fact, he allows Alex to. Mm-hmm. to uh, he 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 doesn't censor. Alex's enjoyment of life, his zest mm-hmm. for life. Uh, Alex does horrendous things, and yet he's very cultured. He's very moved by Beethoven, you know, and, mm-hmm. and he allows that to 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 exist and breathe without necessarily condemn. He doesn't condemn him. I yeah. think that makes well, you know, I mean, Kubrick is a real Freudian, you know, and he sees Alex. I mean, Alex is a kind of representation of of our id, you know, of, of everything that, um, that we keep we keep hidden and and and. Uh, and uh, um, sort of censored from the from the world, um, but Alex is allowed sort of like full reign, you know, in that film. And so, you know, Alex is a kind of it's kind of symbolic, really, of all of our worst instincts, you know, in, in the world. And uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't think of him just as a character, but I think of him. I think that that film is a kind of meditation on human nature. Mm. Um, you know, and what would happen if if people just did everything that they instincts told them to do? It'd be a pretty horrible place, you know. So he understands, I think, you know, as a Freudian, that uh, there has to be a certain kind of censorship of that. Otherwise, society would be kind of wouldn't work. You know, couldn't it couldn't work. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but you know, you know, he also knows that just because there's culture in the world, that it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems of the world. You know, they yeah, aren't necessarily yeah. made better because you listen to Beethoven. You aren't necessarily <laughs> made better because you listen to Wagner, you know? I mean so, right. so you know, so 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 you know, it's it's really yeah, you know, it would be nice if you know, if art made everybody better or made the world better, but it's not a guarantee, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, Well so, I can understand 
when we're talking about duality, I can understand his attraction to, to the themes of war because he returned to it several times in his career because those those are pressure cooker environments that can that can bring out the the best in us and in our, our, our baser instincts as as well. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think? But he's not naive either. He understands that in, there are certain situations where war is necessary. Mm-hmm. No, I mean he's not. He's not just against war or for war. He he knows that there's not, there are such things as just wars, and and he knows that war uh, that you know in Full Metal Jacket, you know, the army does bring out the worst instincts in people. But at the same time, you know, um, what are you going to do when you're in a situation where someone's going to blow your head off? You know, it's like what are you going to do? Yeah. You're, going to, you're going to the survival instinct kicks in, or you you know your training has to kick in and. Uh, you're not you're you're there for a reason and and so uh, he's not a naive artist you know in any way i mean he's not sort of some wishy-washy uh liberal i don't think i think he mm-hmm. uh, he he uh you know i mean i think i think i i don't know what his politics were i think in interviews he talks about i guess the the worst the best of the worst is a kind of parliamentary democracy or something like that you know and you know he knows that there are flaws with any political system but um you know when you when you look at uh um uh, Dr. Strangelove and Full Metal Jacket he knows he knows you know that 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 uh that war and the armed forces and things like that can can bring out you know the worst in individuals but he also knows that in in in, in certain situations you know you need people like this you know to win your wars you know otherwise um you know, there's no point in being in the war. No. There's there's two cuts that interest me um, in his films, and one of them is is probably the greatest uh, the the greatest cut in the history of cinema. That's in 2001, mm-hmm. uh, where the where the ape throws the, uh, uh, the the bone into the air, and it right. it's a shot cut to a you know an armed satellite in space. Right. Basically ignoring four million years of evolution in between that time. Right. Uh, tell me about the significance of that cut and what that achieves in your. Well, view. I mean, you have to think about the whole thing. I mean, uh, here's a film that has uh, the first twenty minutes of this film are 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 apes, you know, and there's like no dialogue. I mean, what an absolutely audacious uh, way to start a movie and confusing mm-hmm. to people. I mean, you know, you can have to imagine yourself in that first audience, you know. You go to see this movie, which is kind of a sci-fi movie that you've heard about, and, and then you're there for 20 minutes, and all you're seeing are apes, you know. And then um, you, you have this ape throw this bone in the air, and we, um, we the beautiful cut. I mean, I, I think of it as a, not just an audacious cut, you know, in, in cinematic time, you know, three or four million years ahead, um, but it's a it's a beautiful, elegant cut, you know. Yes. His, his his work is so elegant. People don't talk about that enough, you know. They're just uh, um. It says how do how do we move the story to the next level, you know, the next stage, uh, the next chapter, um, and we we'll, we'll do it, you know, on on motion, on on uh, you know the. the the shape of the of the bone, 
so the so the the bone goes up and it comes and and when we come down it, <clears throat> you know it's it's a spaceship so it's cut you know it's a, a bit it's very jarring you know very very surprising mm-hmm. um you you don't you don't really know what's going on narratively i mean it takes a while to figure things out um so he i mean he wants to keep he wants to keep us on our toes i think as viewers you know all the time not second guess um uh, you know, and when you're dealing with someone as original uh, as Kubrick, you know, he's such an original artist. You never resort to formula. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the whole idea that we know what's going to happen in any film, or we know how the story's going to develop, or we know what these characters are about, and we kind of can figure out what will happen. I mean, this this that whole conception of cinema is anathema to Kubrick. You know. That whole idea is just—it's just so conventional. I mean, you know, if you're going to make films like that, why bother? You know, yeah. a million times. Um, and so something as original and startling, uh, space obviously, you know, needs a, um, a form that is so radical, you know, uh, and. Uh, Elements like that, you know, like that cut on the bone to the spaceship, are just one one sort of manifestation of how of how um, audacious his forms are, you know, as a filmmaker. Okay. It's a beautiful, beautiful cut, beautiful moment. You know, it's thrilling practically. It's like it's like when you know when the, when the first half of that film ends with Hal reading the lips of of Bowman and. Uh, you know, pool uh, in the space pot, you know, and fix right. it. <laughs> you know, this is the end of the first half of this film. And it's sort of like, <laughs> like when you cut to how, you know, and, and you cut that, and you realize how is reading their lips, you know. It's like, yeah. oh, my God, it's thrilling, you know. It's like formally thrilling. This is He's like this all the time in his work, you know. It's like it's, it's um, this is where we get our thrills, you know, from from an artist, um, working at such a level of artistry, yeah, you know, oh, yeah, that There's that the... he, he astonishes you. You know, it's just like it's so. It sometimes these things feel so effortless, you know, but they're obviously the, they're working. Effort. They're working on so many different levels. Yeah, they're working uh, at so many different levels, yeah. and it's such a level of accomplishment. You know, mm. this is mm-hmm. what you know. You know, originality and imagination. Those are those are concepts that people. In our lives, we we have trouble with because most of us don't live these really exciting original lives. You know, these really exciting imaginative lives. Most of us aren't artists, or most you know whatever. Most mm-hmm. of us aren't creating these universes um, on film or or in literature and or painting or something or music, writing things. But you know, uh, so it's, sometimes it's just it, it remains a kind of abstract idea, you know, oh yeah, mm-hmm. this is original work or this is a really imaginative film or something like this. But when you watch Kubrick over and over again, you realize that uh, this is a man of huge originality and huge imagination, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, and, that, and, 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 and also a great technical accomplishment. I mean, these films are, are really... Uh, Amazing. Immaculate, technically. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, you know, it's astonishing, I think. Uh, his work of art, his work, his body of work is really, 
you know, even though he only made 13 features, you know, it's still an astonishing kind of body of work. The other cut that, or it's more of a transition that uh, that is equally startling, and it takes you a little while to get acclimated to to the new environment. It occurs in Full Metal Jacket, and and mm-hmm. you know a lot of people div- divide that. It's a divided film, but mm-hmm. divide that into those two sections, mm-hmm. and it is it is so completely jarring, fo- mm-hmm. following the murder and the suicide, and then it cuts to. The, the Vietnam uh, experience, it's very unreal. Mm-hmm. And Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Were Made for Walking mm-hmm. and, the, and The Prostitute. And uh, that's another uh, example of of brave uh, of a brave transition there, I think. Yeah. No, that, that, that I think really is. Um, and there are, you know, uh, there are other examples of that, too. I mean, geez, it's like... Uh, there are moments in Eyes Wide Shut where I can think of where there's, a, you know, on one cut, you are suddenly plunged into kind of this deeper mystery. Mm. You know, when we cut to the mask on the bed or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. There are moments like this in Kubrick. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the, the moment in Full Metal Jacket is a bit more, uh, you know, connected to dividing the narrative in these two sections, you know, these uh, to have, so it feels like it's more momentous, you know, in a way. Um, mm. uh, but but I like also like these smaller moments where he kind of just you you think you're kind of going along in the film and you kind of you're understanding things and then suddenly I'm you know with one cut you kind of have to rethink everything, you know, and say, oh no, I I, I really don't get this or what does this mean, you know? Now I thought I was really following everything properly and and just it's kind of always sort of reminding us that um that there's still a lot going on that we don't know um in a Kubrick film uh that that we haven't quite figured everything out yet and sometimes in something like Space Odyssey or it will you know or Full Metal it'll be more more uh jarring you know um just because it's it's uh, so shocking you know yeah when they come, uh, but but he has a lot of these smaller moments too. I find, you know, um, but there, but shifting, there is shifting the viewer from certainty to uncertainty. You know, is part of his is part of his his game. You know, uh, he wants. There's to also. Control. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> so in a sense, like he's he's controlling the agenda. You know, and whenever we think that we we are controlling it, he kind of tries to remind us. You know that. Uh, that, that there's some, something else going on that's actually organizing all of this material, and we shouldn't forget it, you know. Well, there's also he. I know that he was more consumed with capturing something that was interesting and new rather than naturalistic, uh, mm-hmm. and and so even the environments in his films and Full Metal Jacket and mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly Eyes Wide Shut, they have this very unreal. Quality, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe maybe dreamlike in the case of Eyes Wide Shut, which is actually my my favorite Kubrick mm-hmm. film. Eyes Wide Shut is, but uh, what what do you what do you think is the uh, the, the motivation behind that? Because Vietnam well, part of, part, has been yeah, yeah part of it. I think I think Jamie is uh, the way he's working as an artist. You know, he's working. Um, he's a very stylized artist. You know, even though even though his his films are have his incredible attention to detail. 
and realism. You know, you can't imagine uh, you know, the cockpit. Co- you know, the uh, Doctor Strange. Uh, Doctor Strange loves uh, you know the cockpit. You know, being more detailed than that. You know, imagine mm-hmm. how much uh, trouble they went to to create that. Um, or you know, when they're when they're firing on the base or something. I mean, just he 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 goes to great lengths to create a completely and utterly believable universe. You know, you must believe it. You know, you must believe somehow that this is New York um, and and Greenwich Village or Soho or wherever he is in uh, Eyes Wide Shot. You know, you have to believe it. Uh, but at the same time, um, depending on the film, you know, um, that film does work very, in a very dreamlike way. We don't really know if things are happening the way we think they're happening. So he throws in just enough kind of non-realistic elements, sort of stylized elements, to make make sure that uh, that that uh, we don't take it just as completely believable or completely realistic. So it's partly, you know, it's partly a way, um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Kubrick, you know, is is a is an artist who who you know who creates very strong stylistic he has a very strong stylistic signature you know in in all of his films but certainly in late kubrick starting with uh, with space odyssey you know these are very very they, they these are very um in a sense unrealistic works of art they're very stylized every single one of them you know um so th- there is that kind of play between uh Dialization and realism. Again, it's a kind of another duality, I guess, mm-hmm. in his work. And um, just like there are kind of play in, in Eyes Wide Shut between surface and depth, or what we know and what we don't know, or what we see, what we don't see. Um, you know, and in all of his films, he, you know, if you if you've ever read, you know, you've read interviews with this guy, and he, and you know, he's he's always talking about subtext and what the what, you know. Like what mm-hmm. the scene is really about, you know. Like what? Yeah. yeah, you've got you've got the dialogue and what people are talking about. But what's the scene really about? That's where the work. That's where the art comes in, you know. Yes. So it's the, it's the idea of subtext and what we're not getting, um, obviously, what what we're getting through other things, you know, um, through other elements of of, of the film uh, that may not be spoken. And Eyes Wide Shut is is like the great example of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, like whatever scene, whatever you think the scene is about, it's, it's about something else. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just, you know, it's like you know, ten, you know, ten minute scene with uh, Sidney Pollack and Tom Cruise, and Sidney, Sidney Pollack's character Ziegler is explaining everything to Tom Cruise, and you know. Oh yeah, the whole film's being explained, and is that really what this scene is about? I mean, there are yeah. really about something else, you know, or other things, you know, other, other things like that in the film. I mean, just, I mean, you know, you talked about submergible uh, elements uh, before with narrative, you know, with uh, how he conceives of scripts and things. I mean, he's also said, you know, if you've got five or six really great scenes, well, there's your movie, you know. Mm-hmm. You were, you, you know, everything else revolves around those. Five or six really great scenes. You got a great movie, you know, and subtext. You know, what's the? You never tell directly. You never tell the audience directly what what the scene is about. You know, that's not what. The, that's not how art works. Art works more obliquely. 
And I, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. And the art is in transcending what's on the page. And I think his manner of working. You now you hear about Eyes Wide Shut taking a year to shoot and a single scene taking three weeks or whatever it was. Right, right. right. Uh, he. And, and people talk about him being so controlling, and there, of course there's an element of, of, of that with any director, but I find that him getting on set and working with the actors for three weeks on a single conversation scene, he's letting that scene evolve as he's shooting it. He doesn't have a preconceived notion of where that's going to go. He's discovering it in the process, yeah, which I, I, I think is almost the opposite of controlling, of, of strict controlling. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the misconceptions about Kubrick was that he was so controlling and so prepared for everything, and he knew exactly what he wanted when he got to the set. And you know, I mean, it's very clear that that he, you know, did a huge amount of preparation, but he also, um, con- you know, he also um, thought of his actors in particular, mm-hmm. you know, as collaborators, and they they contributed. To the meaning of scenes and how the, those scenes would develop, and and yeah, I mean, I think he was he he was waiting for something to happen on the set, you know, and and, and uh, you know, and 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 if you watch those, you know, something like Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, you, there's no way you could have gotten to those moments if you were just going from the page, right, right. You know, they feel they feel like. I don't know. I, w- I would use the term privileged moments. You know, I mean, other people might call them something different, but those those performances uh, couldn't have gotten to those that point, you know, unless they were worked on and worked on and worked on. You know, there's just there's just a feeling of of um, oh, I'm not sure how to describe it, but um, that, that 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 a feeling of discovery. And then, and then when they actually did discover the moment that they wanted on set, they knew it, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 then then they could sort of say, "We well, we got it now." But it, it might take a it could take a really long time to get to that moment, you know. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I, I had one other point I wanted to discuss with you. Um, mm-hmm. And I, thinking about Eyes Wide Shut and all, all of his films, really, but Eyes Wide Shut for me is just a hypnotic experience. It's a it's a transcendent experience in a way, and it seems like in his work he that's what he was going for. He was going for that transcendent experience. Um, the pacing of his films, the mm-hmm. the long the long takes, mm-hmm. the slow dolly shots. Uh, what does that do? It does more than just give it a, a dreamlike feeling. I mean, what 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 does that do for the style of the film? Well, I mean, you know, when you when you think about how you know a filmmaker is creating their films, I mean, a lot of these things are uh, are part of you know they're part of his DNA. You know, I mean, this is he you know he believed in certain finding the rhythms of things um that would be appropriate for you know that particular that particular film you know um i mean i mean i mean he likes long takes you know you can i mean if you look at um lolita which is what 40 years earlier i mean it's, mm-hmm. it's it has it has these very long takes you know a very 
very kind of hypnotic moment um, um, with with eyes wide shut. Um, even though it's forty years later, I mean, you know, it, that seems to be how he sort of, as you say, almost he almost hypnotizes you to to get you into this universe. Um, the style is so important in that film, you know. Yeah. We have to sort of let go of, uh, in a sense, um, our our feelings that we control this experience, you know, that we understand and control this experience. We have to get to this point of just being so very open about that film, about how it's, about this universe. Um, I think long takes. And the music. It's very mesmerizing music, I think. Yeah. You know? Um, um, and the camera, you know, slow zooms, things like that. Um, those are all contributing to this kind of um, special relationship that the film seems to be having with you, like you, that you are having with the film. It's like you are having it... Um, Alone with this film, like you and the film are, 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 you know, are just. It, it's like this film is speaking just to you. Yes. You no. Know? Um, it's a very. In the style, you know, if he, if he had, if Kubrick had used a very different style in that film, with a lot of a lot of cutting, uh, there's no way it, it could have, you know, a more fractured, more fragmented style. There's no way it could have involved the spectator. In the same kind of way, you know, we have to yes. feel these these slow, slow meditative, contemplative rhythms um, of the film, and slowly he kind of gets us into that universe. You know, um, we kind of have to forget the narrative in a way and just kind of go with the dream logic of it. Um, otherwise, it becomes sort of this unsatisfying film. I think. But right. Once once we realize that it is maybe not working uh, in a normal way, then it becomes a really rich, I think, experience, you know, really. Yeah, if he, if he cut it like a Tony Scott film, <laughs> it, yeah. it, uh, well, it would not it, be know? as sub- immersive. I mean, it's yeah. immersive I mean, quality. Going to it. this level of, of almost uh, the sublime, you know, in that film, there's something so mm. aesthetically interesting and and beautiful uh, and it is a very beautiful film, you know. I think mm-hmm. it's a very beautiful film, even though it's about, uh, you know, this this breakup or this uh, this marriage sort of falling apart. Um, is a visually beautiful film, um, and it has wonderful rhythm. I think, you know. Yeah. And um, this feeling of uncertainty that we talked about before, you know, this feeling of not quite knowing uh, why things are happening the way they are. I think it's a that's a wonderful feeling for people, you know, because we're we're constantly we have these films which are just so thin, you know, they just they they exhaust themselves after you've seen the film once, well, you don't have to see it again. Yeah. I mean, you what's the point, you know? You, you know, and sometimes they're very good films, but I have no desire to see some uh, so many of them again. With Kubrick, I do. You know, something like Eyes Wide Shut, I know that I can go back to it. And I will be, um, you know, transported, or you know, as you say, kind of almost transcended. But I'll be transported into a, a universe that, you know, I will enjoy. And it will be challenging intellectually. I will, I will. Uh, it's sensuous, you know. It's very erotic. It's an erotic. Mm-hmm. You know, film, film is an erotic medium. People don't make, 
don't don't think about it as erotic, but it is erotic, you know. I mean, it's a very sensual medium. Yes. Why we go to the movies to just get enveloped and wrapped up in this kind of wonderful space and place, you know. So I think I think Eyes Wide Shut has that has that into it, and it built into its rhythms and, and its sort of style. I think.